Heavenly Father, with Mary, may our hearts magnify the Lord. And may our spirits rejoice in God our Savior. Amen. So this morning we are in the last Sunday of Advent and are waiting with the people of Israel for the incarnation of our Lord is almost over. We who live on this side of Christ's incarnation, death, and resurrection know that God has done something decisive about the evil of this world and about the evil in our own hearts. It's just as Moses Just as in Moses, God rescued his people out of slavery in Egypt and out of death from the churning waters of the sea, so also in Christ, God is rescuing us from even greater enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. But we know, even as we celebrate the glorious beginnings of this rescue mission and the incarnation of Christ, this rescue mission is not yet complete. There is much suffering in this long age in which this rescue has begun but is not yet finished. And so even as we look forward into Christmastide, we see that the feasts that punctuate that festal season are martyr feasts. And there are two great martyr feasts that fall during Christmastide. The second day of Christmas, December the 26th, is the feast of St. Stephen, the proto-martyr. And the fourth day, December 28th, is the feast of the Holy Innocents. I hope you'll find a way to celebrate all 12 days of Christmas in your home because Christmas is not just a day, but it's actually a season. And I hope that you will especially mark these two feasts. St. Stephen was the first one killed for his faithfulness in confessing Christ. The Greek word proto means means first, so he's the first martyr. The Holy Innocence commemorates the baby boys who lost their lives when the wicked Herod the Great decreed after hearing about the birth of Jesus that all the boys under two in Bethlehem and the surrounding regions must be put to the sword. And these boys are not, strictly speaking, martyrs because they were not killed for confessing Christ, but we commemorate them as martyrs because they died for Christ's sake. And in their vulnerability, they also draw attention to the fragility of every good thing in what St. Paul calls this age, or even, as he says in Ephesians 6.12, this present darkness. In Matthew's nativity account where this story is told, Rachel, the wife of the patriarch Jacob and the mother of Israel, represents Israel as a whole in her anguish and her inconsolable weeping. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. I think it's safe to say that Rachel speaks not just for Israel, but for all mothers, indeed all people everywhere who have lost their children to this present darkness. Rachel's undying sorrow is the last word that can be transparently and unflinchingly spoken about the power of sin and death in our lives outside of the intervention of God. That is why in the Bible, lament is not just sorrow, It's also the demand that God do something to rescue his people and his vulnerable creation. We commemorate those martyrs, St. Stephen and the Holy Innocents, during Christmastide because we know that although God has done something about this darkness, we continue to cry out to him to bring our suffering to a close. God has begun the world's healing in Christ, but it will not be complete until we see him again. Because although we see Jesus, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him and his kingdom. 
We will not be satisfied and we will not end our lamenting, even in the midst of our rejoicing, until we see the light of his appearing, until we can say with the psalmist, in your light we see light. The Christian hope is decidedly a material hope. It is not the hope that God would annihilate his creation and start over again as he did in the flood, much less for a purely spiritual disembodied afterlife. N.T. Wright has pointed out that that was actually the hope of a great many pagan mystery religions during the time of Christ. But our hope, together with all the faithful Jews of the Second Temple period, is for a bodily resurrection, that our own bodies would put on divine life and immortality in Christ. And Jesus is the first fruits of that resurrection, the first one through the gates of that heavenly city. As the Archbishop of Canterbury, William Temple, once put it, Christianity is the most materialistic of all the great religions. Christianity, based as it is on the incarnation, regards matter as destined to be the vehicle and instrument of spirit, and spirit as fully actual so far as it controls and directs matter. Matter will take on spirit. That's the hope of the incarnation. Today, our gospel reading proclaims the material character of our hope in the Song of Mary, the Magnificat. Every year we have this gospel reading to remind us that Mary has an exalted place in God's rescue story. There's a danger of having too grand a place for Mary in our theology, but there is an opposite danger of having too reserved a place for Mary in our theology. Our view of Mary should at least be as high as that of the scriptures. And when Elizabeth, the mother of John the baptizer, proclaims to Mary, blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, she is not only voicing the words of a prayer that has been prayed throughout all the Christian centuries, the Ave Maria, or the Hail Mary, but she's also naming the honor and excellence of this daughter of Zion, who is the bearer of the hope of Israel and of all the nations in her own body. And the angel Gabriel says, Hail Mary, that greeting in Greek, Kyrie, actually means rejoice or even rejoice greatly. As the scholar John McHugh writes, when that word is spoken by a messenger of God, it refers to the joy of the people at some striking act done by God for their salvation. And indeed, that is exactly what has happened Not only has the Lord acted decisively for the salvation of his people, he has done so by robing himself in our flesh, becoming one of us so as to heal every part of us that has been destroyed. And Mary is the Theotokos, the God-bearer, the one who bore in her body the glory of the Lord in the face of Jesus Christ. Martin Luther wrote this in his commentary on the Magnificat. People have crowded all her glory into a single phrase, the mother of God. No one can say anything greater of her that we had as many tongues as there are leaves on the trees. Mary is precious because she embodies the posture of every true disciple. Mary saying, let it be unto me as you have said is what all of us should long to say with our hearts to God. Her soul magnifies the Lord because of his glory. She rejoices in the Lord because she has seen his glory. She has even felt his glory moving in her womb. And she treasured all of these things in her heart. Magnificat is actually Latin for magnifies, 
My soul magnifies the Lord, Mary says, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Mary doesn't just sing of the greatness of God. His greatness has been magnified for her. It's as if she zoomed in with a magnifying glass and is seeing it in all of its radiant and resplendent detail. And she's then preaching on what she's seen to the whole world. She is a prophet, actually both in the sense of foretelling what is to be, that the Lord will redeem the world through the God-man that she bears in her womb, but also in the sense of forth-telling, proclaiming what is true about the Lord and his purposes in history. What does Mary prophesy when she sees the glory of the Lord? Look at this passage for me, with me in your bulletin. She says that the Lord has seen her A vulnerable nobody from a nowhere town. Look again at that reading from Micah today. Actually, the NRSV doesn't quite do justice to what it says. It says, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be counted among the clans of Judah. That's what it says. Bethlehem is like off the interstate, okay? Nobody knows this town, and nobody cares about this teenager from this backwater. But the Lord has seen her. And he says, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be the ruler in Israel. The mighty one has done great things for me and holy is his name. And then Mary zooms out to see the mighty work that the Lord has done to exalt her is of a peace with the work that he has done for Israel and for all who give their allegiance to him in all ages and all places. His mercy is for those who fear him in every generation. And then she goes on to bear the message that all of the prophets of the Lord throughout all of history have borne. He has shown the strength of his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and he has sent the rich away empty. Man. Mary's a revolutionary. But actually, she's no more revolutionary than John the baptizer, than the prophet Isaiah, the prophet Amos, the prophet Zechariah, really any and all of God's prophets. I mean, what does the prophet Daniel say? The Lord sets up kings and deposes them. God's heart, Mary proclaims, is with the poor, the powerless, the humble, the poor, And the powerless and the humble are invisible in every sinful society. And it is God's will to exalt them, to give them dignity and status because they don't have the resources or the means by which to obtain these good things for themselves. God opposes the proud and the arrogant. God opposes the rich who believe their their resources belong to them rather than being stewarded for God's purposes. He opposes every tyrant who rules by bloodthirsty violence and cruelty. And actually, what God is doing about the darkness is that he became one of us in poverty and in great humility and in great powerlessness. He came in this way, not as a fierce general, not like Brutus murdering Julius Caesar the tyrant, saying, sic semper tyrannis, thus always to tyrants. He did this because he came to topple the greatest tyrants of all, sin, death, and the devil, which are actually the spiritual sources of all of these great evils that Mary names so that God's good creation can again be covered with his glory and his shalom. 
And if we listen to Mary, we will see that the hope that we share with her is a deeply embodied hope. It is a hope for a just social order in which the poor and the powerless have a dignity and the care and the personal attention they need because they bear God's image and they reflect his glory. And it is God's will in every generation that his people in the church turn their attention to the poor and the powerless and the humble and that we concern ourselves with them to make them no longer invisible in this, the community of the church. That is how his people are to be marked out as different than the surrounding world. I encourage you, go read Matthew 25 again. That's what the church is supposed to look like. Mary's story itself, as it's recorded in the Gospels of Luke and John, actually reflects this concern that God has for the poor. Mary herself, think about her and her social situation. She is a poor, vulnerable, young, pregnant woman. Demographically, one of the most vulnerable people we can imagine, actually. And God instructs Joseph to provide for her. In every place and at every time, it is the poor who experience the breakup of families most excruciatingly. This holy family of Joseph and Mary and Jesus is actually the fulfillment of the final prophecy of the final book of the Old Testament, Malachi. He says that God will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children. When the salvation of God comes, it comes to restore families. And so in a unique way, this holy family expresses God's heart for the plight of the poor. But God is not just concerned with the restoration of families, but with the creation of a new kind of family in his people, the church. In John's gospel, when Jesus is hanging on the cross, it is Mary and John that are standing at his feet. And Jesus says, woman, behold your son. And to John, he says, Behold your mother. And it says, touchingly and briefly, that from that moment, this disciple took her into his home. The church is a new kind of family, a family in which the broken families of this world and those who do not have families in this world may be gathered up so that God may have mercy on all those who fear him in every generation. And what would it look like for Ascension to become that kind of new family? I don't know that we are that yet. But I hope, I hope, listening to Mary, that we would become that kind of family. And so I think it's important as we read the song of Mary to stress that God is not a classist. He does not love the poor because the poor are inherently more virtuous, but because in this present darkness, the poor and the powerless are always more vulnerable. What God hates is the self-sufficiency and the pride and the oppression that comes from wealth and power and status. And when the oppressed actually become oppressors, he opposes them, he opposes them too. Remember how he grounds all of the law in the Old Testament. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt. Don't forget that. What God wants is for all rancor and all pride which destroys relationships and which causes bloodshed, which lets death colonize more and more territory in our communities and in our institutions to be destroyed. We've been badly served in many ways by the sentimentality and the consumerism of this season. I mean, I'm caught up in it too. 
But can we let Mary's song bring us in the church back to the heart of God? We would be a new kind of family in which the broken families of this world and those without families are gathered up so that God may have mercy on all of those in every generation who fear him. Christmas is not about coziness, but about the hope we have and the desperate situation that we find ourselves in as human beings living on this side of Christ's second coming. Mary is the God-bearer. She proclaims the meaning of the hope that the one in her womb will bring to the world. Christ is the one who crushes the head of the ancient serpent, who brings an end to pride and to rancor and to destruction. In this last Sunday of Advent, let us attend to this daughter of Zion, Mary, this woman of valor, this second Eve, who points us to her son. Amen.